Well, today is Palm Sunday, and it begins a week in the church calendar called Holy Week. And I, I didn't, growing up, I didn't realize that. I didn't know that it had a name, and I didn't, we didn't, I didn't know all the traditions of all of it, because sometimes we've lost some of that liturgy. That's actually a good, the liturgy is a good thing, not that we've lost it's a good thing, but the liturgy, some of those things, be reminded, this is the Holy Week, where we think about the last week of Christ. And this is Palm Sunday, where we are reminded of the day that Christ triumphantly entered into Jerusalem. And when I think of Palm Sunday, I always go back to my, the two Sundays, two Palm Sundays I spent in Ecuador, as it was, it was a big ordeal. It was a big day. And I remember waking up that very first Palm Sunday, and I looked out my little apartment window, and the, the streets were just busy. It's like, what is going on? And, and people had all of these palm branches. And they were, there's some small ones, some, some huge ones. And they were woven um, with, I don't even know what they woven with, maybe banana leaves and different things, uh, different palm branches that they would make, these large palms. And they would take them, and they would take them to the square, the main part of our city, and they would go to the cathedral. And there they would be blessed. And then they would take those palm branches, though, and they would be that, which is almost like um, almost a good luck charm for them in their home. And they'd put it maybe by the door or above their door of their home to add protection to their family. And then later in the year, if they needed rain, they would pray for rain and burn that, that palm branch. And all of a sudden, I realized that that tradition had lost some of the meaning of what was going on. I began to ask my friends, well, do you know the story of Palm Sunday? And the majority of them were like, I don't know. They didn't know. It was just to get a palm blessed to help protect their home, and they missed the gospel. They missed the truth that Jesus entered into Jerusalem on that day, proclaiming that he is king of kings and the Messiah. They missed it. But sometimes we can also go through this week and this day and and forget the truth of who Christ is. And as we walk through this passage and Every year, every other year, we come to these Palm Sunday branch um, sermons and passages that we look at. And at the same time, I want to be reminded every year afresh and anew of these, of these things. And in it, even as I think about application, you know, like, what is the application in the sermon? And really, if you are reminded of who Jesus is today... I'm going to be excited for you. And in this, we are reminded that Jesus, he's our sovereign Lord. We're reminded that he is our humble, he's a humble Messiah King, he's a Savior King. He's our divine Lord. He's he's worthy of worship. We see that here. And also, we see that Jesus, he's our compassionate Savior. So we see all of these things. And may this passage, this truth in this passage remind you of those today. So let's just dig in and look at this passage, Luke 19, again, that we, we've already heard this morning. We're going to start in verse 28. Let me read a few of those, and we begin in this passage, in this first few verses, and see that Jesus, he's sovereign. He is Lord of all. Verse 28, when he, Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, and when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples. So here we see Jesus, he's on his way to Jerusalem, and 
in the Gospel of Luke, back in chapter 9, it says that Jesus, he set his face to Jerusalem. So this is the idea that he set his face. He knew what was going to happen in Jerusalem. He knew that at Jerusalem he would be crucified, that he would be betrayed, he'd be arrested, he'd be tried, he'd be beaten, he'd be crucified, and he would also bear the wrath of God, bear the judgment for the sins of the world. And Jesus, on his way, he let the disciples know these things. He, he told them once and twice and a third time reminding them and telling them that he was going to die and rise again. And they were pretty confused on this. In the Gospel of Mark, as they're on their way near Jerusalem, it says this about the disciples. This is in Mark chapter 10, 32 through 34. It says, And they were on the road going to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. So they're on the way, and the disciples, they're looking at Jesus, and they're amazed, they're astonished. They know he said, in Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise again. There's confusion about what's going on, and they don't fully understand what's going to happen. They just know it's going to be huge, it's going to be painful, and they're amazed as they go, and they follow Jesus into Jerusalem. And he tells them a third time. And this is the account in Luke of that third account where Jesus tells his disciples about what is going to happen. This is in Luke chapter 18, so, so just a page maybe away in your Bible. Verses 31 through 34, Jesus tells this to his disciples. See, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them. So they're still confused. There's still a lot of what's going on. But Jesus there, he doesn't leave them in the dark. He wants them to understand he reveals him. We have a God who speaks, who reveals himself. And here, Jesus continues to not be, let them be in the dark, but this is what's going to happen. He enters into relationship with them as he tells them, this, these are the things that happen. Even if you don't understand them, these are going to come to pass. They're going to unfold. And he tells them these things. So as he enters in, he willingly, knowingly goes to Jerusalem, knowing that he will be arrested, beaten, flogged, spit upon, and killed, but rise again. And then verse 29, at the end of it, he said, Then he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You say to them, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. So here 
we have this account. So Jesus, he sends these two disciples away into the village. Into maybe, maybe Bethany or maybe Bethpage. We don't know, but into the village. Again, here they are on outside the outskirts of Jerusalem, about to enter in on the east near Mount of Olives. And Jesus sends them in to a village. And he says to them, hey, you're going to find a colt there. Untie it. And if they ask, they ask, who, what are you doing? As they, you might say, they're supposed to tell them, hey, the master, the Lord has need of it. And one interesting thing is we see that indeed they go in and they begin to untie that colt. And the masters, the owners of that colt, what do they say? Why are you untying the colt? (laughs) And this word owners is actually the same word as the Lord. So it's the word curios. So these are the owners, are the lords of the colt. And the disciples say, the Lord, the Lord has need of it. And you wonder, I wonder, we don't know, it doesn't have all the insight, but I wonder if they recognize those disciples. Maybe they were a follower of Jesus and they understood the Lord has need of it. And they allowed the disciples to take that cult. Or it could have been Jesus was not unfamiliar with Bethany. This is where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus live. So this is where Jesus rose Lazarus from the from the grave. So he was not unfamiliar with this area. And in the Gospel of John, we also know that Jesus went to Jerusalem on several trips. So it could have been, yes, that there were some arrangements made. Yet at the same time, the emphasis of this passage is upon the sovereignty of Jesus. As he tells the disciples, the emphasis is on the authority and the foreknowledge of Jesus Christ. And we see in perfect detail that everything Jesus said would happen, happened. And the text clearly highlights that Jesus is in control of this situation. He is not out of control in the midst of this. He is not just mere man, but he is the son of God. He is divine. He is sovereign. He is in control and in charge of history, even the history leading up to his own death and crucifixion. So Jesus was in, in control this is a, a quote from R.C. Ryle, who is an English minister back in the 1800s. So wiser than I, for sure. And he said this. In short, he speaks like one to whom all things were open, like one whose eyes are everywhere, like one who knew unseen things as well as visible things. Knowledge such as this is the special attribute of God. Such passage. Such passages are meant to remind us that the man, Jesus Christ, is not only man, he is also God. Amen? So Jesus, he willingly and with full knowledge goes to Jerusalem. He enters in knowing that he is both king of kings and also the the suffering servant as prophesied in the Old Testament who would die for the sins of mankind. And he willingly goes to take upon the curse of the cross upon himself that we might through death receive the righteousness of God so he willingly goes the creator is headed to the cross and we see that in this passage and and if if this was like a movie that we were watching I'm sure in the midst of it even if it was a movie we'd seen a bunch of times we'd be like no don't go in stop it's a trap 
They're going to kill you, be filled with that and wonder, is it going to work out this time? But we know, we know it does. God takes his tragedy and brings about salvation for all who turn and trust in him. He willingly went and he knew that taking upon himself even the greatest injustice of all time, that he was going to, to rearrange that so it would bring about redemption and bring about God's great rescue plan for mankind through this. As Jesus goes, he's one who's going to seek and save the lost. And he still draws us now. He still awakens our hearts now. He still comes to rescue us and forgive us of our sins now. When we turn and trust in him, salvation is, is there for us. And then he sends us out, right, as ambassadors of his grace. So we're reminded this morning not to lose hope, uh, but to trust and our God, who can take that of the cross and bring about redemption. We know that things aren't undone without hope. God can take the mess of where we are at in our lives, even right now, and bring about rescue and make it into something beautiful as well. And then Jesus, we see, continues here, verse 35. And it says, and they brought the colt. They brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. So Jesus, we see, he's our humble Messiah King. He's like, well, why? Why do you see he's a humble Messiah King? Well, here, as Jesus is placed upon this colt, he's fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. In the Gospel of Matthew, he lets us in on that, and he says, Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy from the Old Testament. From Zechariah 9, chapter 9. And in this chapter, in the passage in the Old Testament, it's a passage about God defeating his enemies, about restoring his people, and also about bringing uh, rescue to, to the nations as well. And this is Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a colt, the full of a donkey. Sorry. So he comes humbly seated on this colt. And in Matthew, it does let us know that, yeah, this is a colt of a donkey, of a beast of burden. He comes riding in, humbly entering in. And I don't know if you've ever ridden a donkey. I didn't. I've had an opportunity to ride a donkey. It was. It was. Well, it was out in Ecuador and um, out in a farm and in a donkey. It's not really majestic. It's kind of like this as you're riding. <laughs> um, not a majestic um, animal, but he comes in humbly, mounted on the donkey. And it's in contrast. Even in that passage in the Old Testament, there's a contrast here. This is the next verse. In Zechariah 9.10, it says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. So here he say that, he, that there's a, a contrast between a donkey and chariots and war horses. So he comes in as one is humble. He comes in to rescue the poor, the sinner, those in need, us. 
Think of Philippians, the passage that we look to often in chapter 2, where it speaks of, of Christ who didn't grasp equality. He didn't consider equality with, thing, with God a thing to grasp, but instead he emptied himself, taking upon himself the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Or another verse we often go to that I go to, Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Let me offer that you might find rest of your, for your soul. So we see this picture of the humility of Christ entering in, that he is one who rescues sinners. He rescues us. And then verse 35 as well, it says that, that, that they, um, they set Jesus upon this colt. They set him upon the colt. It's this picture of Jesus being enthroned. He is, he is king, and he sat on this colt that has yet to be ridden. And a king, a animal or a horse or a colt for a king would have to be one who that was unridden. It's just for the king, set apart for him, and it's unridden. And Christ rides in on this colt, this donkey, humbly entering in. This is another quote from a, a pastor of old from the early 1900s, a Presbyterian pastor, Clarence McCartney. How strange a contrast to the triumphant the triumphal entry of ancient warriors and conquerors into the cities which they had taken. This time, no wall broken down for entry. This time, no garland hero standing in his war chariot, driving down the lane of cheering subjects past smoking altars and followed by captive kings and princes in chains. Instead of that, just a meek and lowly man riding upon the foal of a donkey. So Christ, so sovereign yet humble, he comes not to, to be served, but to serve and willingly giving his life as a ransom for money. And he's actively serving today. He came to serve once and he serves us continually through his spirit. May we re remember those things and think about these things, even in this chapter in Luke. If you look at the very first few verses of Luke. What's the story? It's the story of Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus? He's a tax collector. He worked for the Romans. The Romans occupied Jerusalem, and he worked for them, and he um, took taxes. It would be a little bit, I was thinking today, even if, if if Russia were to occupy Ukraine and you were to become a Ukrainian taking taxes from your people, clearly you would not be the most loved person in your city. And yet Jesus goes to Zacchaeus, calls him to himself, and Zacchaeus repents and changes, and he's utterly new. And at the end of that passage, that story, verse 10 in chapter 19, it says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So we're reminded today, maybe you come and you feel the weight even of just your brokenness and your need for Jesus this morning, just a weight of sin even. 
maybe even as one who is a follower of Jesus Christ, you know you're forgiven, but still you feel the weight of just falling short. Maybe you feel the weight of just your inability to, to love well, to parent well, <laughs> to serve well, to love your spouse well. But there's good news. Jesus knows that we fall short. He knows that we need forgiveness. He knows that we need him. So when we feel the weight of our need and the weight of our sin, it shouldn't cause us to utterly despair, but instead it should cause us to look to Jesus. It should cause us to fall at the feet of our sovereign yet humble Messiah King, Jesus. Even if you're in one of our DNA groups, we're starting to pretty soon, some of us are already there, but in 2 Timothy and In chapter 2, Paul begins and he speaks to Timothy and he says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say, be strengthened in all your knowledge or be strengthened in all your goodness or all your worky works or whatever. But he says, be strengthened by the grace of Jesus. And that's what we need. That's what we all need. In the verses 36 through 40, we see Jesus, our divine Lord, he's worthy of praise. Let's just walk through those verses together. Verse 36, and, and he rode along. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. So as they go in, they lay down cloaks. And as we see in the other Gospels, they also lay down palm branches. That's why it's Palm Sunday. So Luke doesn't mention it, but um, the others do. So they're laying down these cloaks and these palm branches. And as they lay them down, there's a symbol of submission to Jesus as king. And palm branches... In that time, they had a Jewish, they symbolized Jewish nationalism and victory. So they're laying these things at the feet of Jesus. In the Old Testament, we have one story of King Jehu, who was made king of Israel. And as he was being ushered in as king of Israel, they laid down cloaks for him to go across. And here we have that picture that he is king and he is worthy. And they're declaring these things. And then they speak about them. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that he had done. So he enters in and all this multitude of the disciples of Jesus come and they're just with loud voices, they're rejoicing and they're praising God for all that he has done. And in the Gospel of John, it tells us that one of the main miracles that they're thinking of is that Lazarus was raised from the dead. Many maybe are coming from Bethany. They, they know Lazarus, they know Mary. They, they, they've seen this miracle and they bring praise to him because he is worthy. And they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So they bring praise. Blessed is the king They're declaring Jesus to be king, the Messiah, the one who's coming in to to rescue them. They don't understand fully how, but they believe him to be the Messiah. And they're quoting from Psalm 118, 25 through 26. And then peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It echoes back, you think in the the gospel of Luke, at the account of the birth of Jesus Christ, the angels come and they declare to the shepherds the birth of Jesus. And they say in chapter 2 in Luke, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And then in Matthew, Mark, and John, it also has a declaration of Hosanna to the son of David. 
Hosanna. And if you're like me, every year i got to remember, okay, what does Hosanna mean? i got to look it up. I just forget these things. I, I wish I could remember everything, but remind it again. It means save. Save us. Save. It's an exclamation of, of praise. It became to be known as just a way of saying praise and save and salvation. So they declare that, that he is a son of David. Again, a declaration that he is the Messiah, that he is the Savior. He's the one that they've been waiting for to come and rescue them. And in the Gospel of Matthew, it also says that as he enters, the whole city was stirred, saying, who is this? Who is this? So the whole city is rocked by what is going on as we see in the Gospel of Matthew. And he is worthy of praise. But not everyone in the crowd was really excited about these things. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So not everyone praised. There were some these Pharisees, these religious leaders that rejected that Jesus was the Messiah, and they dismissed it, and they were offended by these claims. And they told Jesus, make them stop. And Jesus, he continues to be an offense today. As many are offended that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life, the only hope. And yet he is And here they reject him. But Jesus, how does he respond? He says, if they're silent, these rocks over here, they would cry out. So this is a pretty strong rebuke. He's saying, even these rocks, they have a better understanding of who I am than you do. (laughs) And I am worthy of praise. And that's what Jesus says, and he tells them. So we're at this climax of this redemption story And God is orchestrating all of these things as he enters in to Jerusalem. He's worthy of praise. Are we reminded of that? That Jesus is truly the Son of God, the only way? Or are we offended and seek to push back? He is the only hope that we have. We all in life, we mention it often throughout the year, especially during Advent. But we all are seeking hope and love and joy in peace, and they're found in Jesus. May you submit to him and find that in him. And then verse 41 through 42, finally, as we close out, Jesus, he's our compassionate Savior. He's our compassionate Savior, verse 41 and 42. And when he drew near, Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that that make for peace but now they're hidden from your eyes. So here Jesus, he approaches Jerusalem. Remember, they're on the outskirts and they're approaching it. And, and I, you can just picture they're at a place where all of a sudden you can just see the, the full um, city and they see it there. It's a bit like, as you're reminded, even as we traveled, we, our family, we did something we don't often do is take this really short, somewhat spontaneous for us trip. We didn't plan like a week ahead, and we went to the sand dunes. And when you go to the sand dunes, you got to go up to 285, and you go up through Conifer and Bailey and up to, uh, what is it, Kenosha Pass. And you 
you turn that corner and you see this whole valley of South Park. I've mentioned that before, but you just turn and all of a sudden, boom, there it is. And I, I just I see that, I think of that here uh, possibly as, as they see the whole city. And what does Jesus do? He, he, he weeps. He wept over the city. Jesus, he's not weeping over himself. He's weeping over the lostness and the judgment to come upon the city. Because he knows that they're going to reject him and that and there will be a destruction of, of Jerusalem in the temple in 70 AD and destruction is to come. And, and he weeps over them and we see the heart of God that he does not rejoice over the death of even the wicked. We see that in the Old Testament. Zechariah 33, 11 says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his ways and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? There's a call in the heart of our God for, for um, repentance, that there might be salvation poured out. And yet we do have a God who is still a just judge and a good God. And as a good, just judge must do to punish criminals. So our God will justly judge sin, but he desires for repentance. As I was studying this I, in my um, Bible app where I have different notes and things, I had one little note on this verse where I wrote this. And, and I pray that this um, would well up in my heart and our hearts as we we think about even this passage. I just said, may I have the same passion as Jesus for others. Here his passion is for God's chosen nation specifically, but we know that Jesus died for people from every nation. My heart at times loves little and does not see past the outward and the temporal. I need the love and passion of my Savior um, that this would affect me most. Sometimes I, I, I love little. Maybe you're that way too. So we have passion. We, our passion is little for the lost, but maybe love much. And love is Christ's love and have that compassion for others. So we're, we need to be reminded, even just a renewal of those who need Jesus around us. So as we see this passage, we're reminded that Jesus Christ, he's, he's sovereign. He's humble. He's worthy of praise and he's compassionate. And there's a calling even today to turn and trust in him if you're far from him. And there's a call to, to worship him and to find life in him. Let me read one more quote by R.C. Ryle, one of the pastors I quoted earlier. And he said this, Let us leave the whole passage with the cheering reflection that the joy of Christ's disciples at his entry into Jerusalem when he came to be crucified, will prove to be nothing compared with the joy of his people when he comes again to reign. Not a word will be spoken against the king when he comes to Jerusalem that second time. So here's a picture of Jesus' entry that reminds us that one day he will return again and make all things right. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. and We'll worship him. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we come before you today and we thank you for this time of year. We need reminders. We just need even that rhythm, uh, tradition. 
But may it not just be mere um, tradition that we forget about its meaning. Lord, help our hearts to be reminded even this week as we think through these days and the events in the life of Christ and be reminded of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for us. Lord, help us to be reminded of how our God, Jesus Christ, he's sovereign and humble and worthy of worship and compassionate. And may we be reminded of the strength and the grace and the forgiveness that come from him alone. Lord, help us to worship even to worship well this week, throughout this week. And I pray even if our hearts have grown cold or are far from you, that you would warm them again by the truth, the grace, and the hope that's only found in you. So we pray for that this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.